Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I am Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So, I do not remember, Lucas, the last time that you and I had a bonus episode. Uh, I'm Was sure... It? Was it 365 days ago? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I want to say we've had, you know, we, we did have uh, in January when we were doing like a giveaway, we had a bonus like, you know, giveaway announcement episode. Uh, but I mm-hmm. genuinely don't know We like the last time that we had like it's a standalone like on yeah. some given topic, not just an announcement. Um, so uh, happy Sunday, everybody. Happy Reformation Day. Happy Halloween, whatever whatever you're celebrating today. Uh, we hope that you're doing well. Uh, like Lucas just sort of insinuated, 365 days ago, we dropped a bonus episode on the 95 Theses, and uh, we're doing it again. Uh, very much the same form factor. We're going to read uh, like one thesis, one, one thesis, <laughs> one thesis after another. So Jens, Lucas, Jens, Lucas, all the way through all 95 uh, we might have some running commentary along the way if something seems just a little peculiar or strange or interesting or cool or whatever. Uh, but uh, if you did listen to last year's episode, it'll be interesting, I think, to at least kind of see the difference, maybe some of the different things that we highlight, um, maybe some of the different conversations that we have. So yeah, I guess with without any further ado, uh, we're going to begin uh, by reading the introduction. So the 95 Theses starts with this little this little tidbit about like what it's all about. And then he goes into the different theses. So he says out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, the Reverend father, Martin Luther master of arts and sacred theology an ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg intends to defend the following statements and to dispute them in that place, i.e. Wittenberg. Uh, Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, I don't know that we'll say, are we going to say the number each and every time? Why not? Eh, Probably not. (laughs) Okay, well, number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Three, yet, it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. Four, the penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, that is, true inner repentance, Uh, namely, till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Five, the Pope neither desires nor is able to remit any penalties except those imposed by his own authority or that of the canons. Six, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing that it has been remitted by God or, to be sure, by remitting guilt in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission in these cases were disregarded, the guilt would certainly remain unforgiven. 7. God remits guilt to no one, unless at the same time he humbles him in all things and makes him submissive to the vicar, the priest. 8. The penitential canons... 
Yeah, it, right? Penitential? Is that, is that? Okay. Uh, the penitential canons are imposed only on the living, and according to the canons themselves, nothing should be imposed on the dying. Nine. Therefore, the Holy Spirit through the Pope is kind to us, insofar as the Pope in his decrees always makes exception of the article of death and of necessity. Very brief in- interruption on that one. It's interesting that there's a little bit of kindness towards the Pope shown here. It's not all angry. It's not all against the Pope necessarily. So that that's at least worth noting. I don't know that I've ever really caught that little bit. I, uh, I'm always struck at how Catholic he is here, like it at this sense. stage in, fi- yeah. in 1517, like, because it's not, you know, 1517, I don't, I don't have my dates right, but it's not, you know, too much later that he's going to be going around writing about how the Pope is the Antichrist. So right, exactly. there is this obvious development in terms of um, <laughs> how he views the pa- the Pope and the office of the papacy in terms of its, of its role, um, which makes a lot of sense, given that this was um, a literal Roman Catholic Augustinian monk trying to reform uh, the catholic church debate some (laughs) theological questions that he had with some other professors at the university (laughs) yeah just very very interesting there so number 10 continues those priests act ignorantly and wickedly who in the case of the dying reserve canonical penalties for purgatory 11 those tears of changing the canonical penalty to the penalty of purgatory were evidently sown while the bishops slept matthew 13 25 not really sure what that one means. Yeah, um, is that like when the disciples fell asleep at the garden or something? Uh, or, I can't remember. I don't know. Uh, number 12, the, in former times, canonical penalties were imposed, not after, but before absolution, as tests of true contrition. 13, the dying are freed by death from all penalties, are already dead as far as the canon laws are concerned, and have a right to be released from them. 14, imperfect piety or love on the part of the dying person necessarily brings with it great fear, and the smaller the love, the greater the fear. 15. This fear or horror is sufficient in itself, to say nothing of other things, to constitute the penalty of purgatory, since it is very near to the horror of despair. 16. Hell, purgatory, and heaven seem to differ the same as despair, fear, and assurance of salvation. 17. It seems as though for the souls in purgatory, fear should necessarily decrease and love increase. Hmm. 18. Furthermore, it does not seem proved either by reason or by scripture that souls in purgatory are outside the state of merit, that is, unable to grow in love. It's interesting, sorry before you go, that he says uh, it does not seem proved either by reason or scripture. I wonder if that is like intentional or if... Uh, it just seems weird that he wouldn't say scripture and reason, but that he first says, like, you know, as we're thinking about these things, like, reason is the first thing that he lists. Maybe I'm reading way oh, too yeah. deep into that. I don't know. I, that, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, that is a curious question. I don't know if there's, if there's any, like, it's probably who knows kind of thing. But, <laughs> right. But worth, but yeah. I mean, interesting. It, it piqued my interest, so. 19. Nor does it seem proved that souls in purgatory, at least not all of them, are certain and assured of their own salvation, even if we ourselves may be entirely certain of it. Uh, 20. Therefore, the Pope, when he uses the words 
uh, plenary remission of all penalties does not actually mean all penalties, but only those imposed by himself. 21. Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. 22. As a matter of fact, the Pope remits to souls in purgatory no penalty which, according to canon law, they should have paid in this life. Is, is Luther assuming that purgatory is a place? I have not determined that yet. Seems like it. Okay, interesting. I, don't, I, uh, I mean, I don't think he'd be, you know, disputing about what the Pope's jurisdiction over souls in purgatory is if he didn't believe in it if he didn't think that yeah. there was souls in purgatory to be to have jurisdiction over or not have jurisdiction over as yes. he seems to be getting at that's fair um sorry i lost my place we are in 23 23 right? uh, 23 if remission of all penalties whatsoever could be granted to anyone at all certainly it would be granted only to the most perfect that is to say very few 24 for this reason uh, most people are necessarily deceived by that indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of release from penalty. 25. That power which the Pope has in general over purgatory corresponds to the power which any bishop or curate has in a particular way in his own diocese and parish. 26. The Pope does very well when he grants remission to souls in purgatory, not by the power of the keys, which he does not have, but by way of intercession for them. 27. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. 28. It is certain that when money clinks in the money chest, greed and avarice can be increased, but when the church intercedes, the result is in the hands of God alone. 29. Who knows whether all souls in purgatory wish to be redeemed, since we have exceptions in St. Severinus and St. Pascal as related in a legend. All right, we need an episode on those two. I have no idea what that means, but I am fascinated. Oh, man, maybe we'll do that next month. Uh, 30, no one is sure of the integrity of his own contrition, much less of having received plenary remission. 31, the man who actually buys indulgences is as rare as he who is really penitent. (laughs) Indeed, he is exceedingly rare. (laughs) A little bit of humor and wit, maybe. 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Uh, 33. Men must especially be on guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons are that inestimable gift of God by which man is reconciled to him. 34. For the, grace, uh, for the graces of indulgences are concerned only with the penalties of sacramental satisfaction established by man. 35. They who teach that contrition is not necessary on the part of those who intend to buy souls out of purgatory or to buy confessional privileges preach unchristian doctrine. Hmm. So is that is that basically saying, like, you can't... Like, you can't just say if you buy this indulgence, you have eternal life, or at least you have, like, the, you're, you're closer to eternal life. Like, you, you actually have to be p- repentant and, and sorrowful for sin. Is that what it seems like he's saying there? I mean, it makes yeah, sense. Because it's like the, the contrition is not necessary. So you're saying, oh, you're, you know, you're buying your way into heaven. This, you know, you're buying this forgiveness of sins, or you're buying your, your, your mother's, you know, mm. uh, time off of purgatory. 
but you're not actually being contrite. Gotcha. You're not you're not actually you know be approaching your you know you're not actually going to confession because you're repentant of your sins. You're just trying to buy confession. Okay. <laughs> um, and therefore that's unchristian doctrine. That's what it sounds like at yeah. least. Okay. Thirty six. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgence letters. 37. Any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted him by God, even without indulgence letters. Thank goodness and amen. Uh, 38. Nevertheless, papal remission and blessing are by no means to be disregarded, for they are, as I have said, thesis 6, the proclamation of the divine remission. 39. It is very difficult, even for the most learned theologians, at one and the same time, to commend to the people the bounty of indulgences and the need of true contrition. Hmm. 40. A Christian who is truly contrite seeks and loves to pay penalties for his sins. The bounty of indulgences, however, relaxes penalties and causes men to hate them. At least it furnishes occasion hating for them, or occasion for hating them. 41. Papal indulgences must be preached with caution, lest people erroneously think that they are preferable to other good works of love. Yeah, he's still sounding pretty Catholic. 42. Christians are to be taught that the Pope does not intend that the buying of indulgences uh, should in any way be compared with works of mercy. 43. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. 44. Because love grows by works of love, man thereby becomes better. Man does not, however, become better by means of indulgences, but is merely freed from penalties. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy papal indulgences, but God's wrath. Ooh. 46. Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they must reserve enough for their family needs and by no means squander it on indulgences. Christians are to be taught that uh, the buying of indulgences is a matter of free choice, not commanded. Mm. 48. Christians are to be taught that the Pope, in granting indulgences, needs and thus desires their devout prayer more than their money. 49. Christians are to be taught that papal indulgences are useful only if they do not put their trust in them, but very harmful if they lose their fear of God because of them. 50. Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, he would rather that the Basilica of St. Peter were burned to ashes than built up with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. 51. Christians are to be taught that the Pope would and should wish to give of his own money, even though he had to sell the Basilica of St. Peter to many of those from whom certain hawkers of indulgences cajole money. 52. It is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence, uh, indulgence commissary or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. 53. They are the enemies of Christ and the Pope, who forbid altogether the preaching of the word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. 54. Injury is done to the word of God when, in the same sermon, an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than the word. 55. It is certainly the Pope's sentiment that if indulgences, which are a very insignificant thing, 
are celebrated with one bell, one procession, and one ceremony, then the gospel, which is the very greatest thing, should be preached with a hundred bells, a hundred processions, a hundred ceremonies. 56. The true treasures of the church, out of which the Pope distributes indulgences, are not sufficiently discussed or known among the people of Christ. 57. That indulgences are not temporal treasures is certainly clear, for many indulgence sellers do not distribute them freely, but only gather them. 58. Nor are they the merits of Christ and the saints, for even without the Pope, the latter always works for the, uh, the latter always work grace for the inner man, and the cross, death, and hell for the outer man. 59. St. Lawrence said that the poor of the church were the treasures of the church, but he spoke according to the usage of the word in his own time. Interesting. I love when people say in, his, in their own time, in someone's own place. I want to know more about what that means. Uh, 60. Without want of consideration, we say that the keys of the church, given by the merits of Christ, are that treasure. 61. For it is clear that the Pope's power is of itself sufficient for the remission of penalties and cases reserved by himself. 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Uh, 63. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. Matthew 20, 16. 64. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable, for it makes the last to be first. 65. Therefore, the treasures of the gospel are nets with which one formerly fished for men of wealth. Whoa. 66. The treasures of indulgences are nets uh, with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. Pretty great writing. Right. <laughs> 67. The indulgences which the demagogues acclaim as the greatest graces are actually understood to be such only insofar as they promote gain. 68. They are nevertheless, in truth, the most insignificant graces when compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. Bishops and curates, sorry, 69. Bishops and curates are bound to admit the commissaries of papal indulgences with all reverence. 70. But they are much more bound to strain their eye and ears lest these men preach their own dreams instead of what the Pope has commissioned. 71. Let him who speaks against the truth concerning papal indulgences be anathema and accursed. 72. But let him who guards the lust and license of the indulgence preachers be blessed. 73. Just as the Pope justly thunders against those who by any means whatever contrive harm to the sale of indulgences. 74. Much more does he intend to thunder against those whose indulgences, who, who use indulgences as a pretext to contrive harm to holy love and truth. 75. To consider papal indulgences so great that they could absolve a man even if he had done the impossible and had violated the mother of God is madness. Madness. 76. We say on the contrary that papal indulgences cannot remove the very least of venial sins as far as guilt is concerned. 77. To say that even St. Peter, if he were now Pope, could not grant greater graces is blasphemy against St. Peter and the Pope. <laughs> 78. We say on the contrary that even the present Pope, or any Pope whatsoever, has greater graces at his disposal, that is, the gospel, spiritual powers, gifts of healing, etc., as it is written, 1 Corinthians 12, especially 28. 79. To say that the cross emblazoned 
with the papal coat of arms and set up by the indulgence preachers is equal in worth to the cross of Christ is blasphemy. 80. The bishops, curates, and theologians who permit such talk to be spread among the people will have to answer for this. Ooh, that one's damning. Uh, Mm. When you have to answer for something, especially if it's errant (laughs) teaching, oh man. Uh, 81. This unbridled preaching of indulgences makes it difficult even for learned men to rescue the reverence which is due the Pope from slander. Excuse me. Or from the shrewd questions of the laity. 82. Such as, quote, why does... Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church, end quote. The former reason would be most just, the latter is most trivial. 83, again, quote, why are funeral and anniversary masses for the dead continued and why does he not return or permit the withdrawal of the endowments founded for them since it is wrong to pray for the redeemed? Uh, 84, again, quote, what is the, what is this new piety of God and the Pope that for a consideration of money, they permit a man who is impious and their enemy to buy out of purgatory, the pious soul of a friend of God and do not rather because of the need of that pious and beloved soul, free them for pure love's sake, end quote. 85, again, quote, why are the penitential canons long since abrogated and dead in actual fact and through disuse now satisfied by the granting of indulgences as though they were still alive and in force? 86, again, quote, why does, why does not the Pope whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus uh, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than the money of poor believers, end quote. 87, again, Quote, what, what does the Pope remit or grant to those who by perfect contrition already have a right to full remission and blessings? 88, again, quote, what greater blessings could come to the church than if the Pope were to bestow these remissions and blessings on every believer a hundred times a day as he now does but once, end quote. 89, quote, since the Pope seeks the salvation of souls rather than money by his indulgences, why does he suspend the indulgences and pardons previously granted when they have equal efficacy? 90. To repress these very sharp arguments of the lady by force alone, and not to resolve them by giving reasons, is to expose the church and the pope to the ridicule of their enemies and to make Christians unhappy. 91. If, therefore, indulgences were preached according to the spirit and intention of the pope, all these doubts would be readily resolved. Indeed, they would not exist. 92. Away, then, with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, uh, Christ, quote, Peace, peace, end quote, and there is no peace, Jeremiah 6.14. 93, blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, cross, cross, and there is no cross. 94, Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell. 95, and thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. Acts 14.22. Ooh, we did it. 95 theses. Man. All 95. All right. I, yeah, I love, I, I just, I remember like we did this last uh, Reformation Day, last October. And then I remember I took... Um, my in the spring my church history class we we went over 
um, we got to Luther, and we so we talked about and read the, the Martha 95 Theses a little bit um, then. And, and I just, I'm always, I always find it fun in sort of a, you know, probably sinful, somewhat cynical way that we learn that the 95 Theses start the Reformation, so we think that it's like this confessional document of, you know, Reformed theology. But that's not what it was. Exactly. It was a very particular, you know, list of specific theological concerns that, that a monk and theologian had. Um, and one of the things that my professor told me last, last uh, spring, which has really stuck with me and I think is um, what I'm going to start telling people, is if you want a better idea of sort of like the basics of Luther's like Reformation thought, you should read the Heidelberg Disputation, um, which is a debate that he had at Heidelberg um, where he gets into a lot of the questions of like justification that kind of become the central concerns of the Reformation, of especially, you know, Luther's work in, with reform. But here we see this almost, you know, almost like a canon law debate over the jurisdiction of the Pope, right? The The issue isn't even so much the existence of indulgences, even, let, let alone the existence of the papacy or something like that. It, it's, it's how these indulgences are being sold. Not even that they're being sold, which I'm not saying we should agree with 1517 Luther, and I'm not even saying we should, that, that later Luther would agree with 1517 Luther as regards the sale of indulgences, but it is interesting that this is the sort of the, the seed that sprouts into these much bigger questions, I think we can say, For sure. that, that get brought up later in the Reformation and especially developed through conflict with, with um, different groups and stuff. But we see like the concern for the centrality of the gospel. And the pro I think this is also maybe helpful for looking at like, the problem isn't, necessarily that like the medieval western church had stopped preaching the gospel the problem is there are these other practices which are like he says matters of free choice and they have to do with like temporal penalties for example indulgences um that aren't even necessarily bad or wrong um maybe they're not wise or maybe they're open to abuse or maybe they are bad and inherently wrong but What's what's the the seems to be I think from the perspective of the ninety five theses at least there's this broader issue where regardless of whether something like selling indulgences is quote unquote bad it's being done in a way that obscures the gospel hmm. right he, he talks about oh you don't need contrition you just need to buy forgiveness right oh you don't need to be afraid of God because you paid a certain amount of money. So you can put your trust in that slip of paper that proves you've been given an indulgence, right? When it's like, actually, no, like, that's not true at all. And that is, that gets in the way of the gospel, which is, the, which is ultimately the problem, right? That's sort of the, the core problem that I think is brought out in the 95 Theses. I'm not saying that's the only problem, but it's certainly, I think, um, helpful to look at such an early document when we're talking about like 
you know, Luther's career and when we're talking about the, the progress of the Reformation and the issues of the Reformation, 1517 and the 95 Theses is, is you know, it hasn't even really started yet. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, I think that's kind of helpful to, to bring out that perspective too, where it's like, this is where it's, there, there's, there's a reason that this doesn't look like, you know, a Reformed confession. Or this doesn't read like Luther's small catechism will later, you know what I mean? Or something like that, or the Augsburg Confession or whatever. And it's like, well, because look at what he's doing. He's he's noticing these problems in his in his ministry, in his teaching, you know. And he's trying to evaluate, well, how does that fit with what's going on in scripture? How does that fit with what's going on in the teaching of the church that we have from the earlier saints that he references and stuff, you know, and he's noticing, hey, it doesn't really fit. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason it doesn't really fit is because we're moving our hope out of Christ and his forgiveness and into things that, that we can do under our own power and people that we can trust instead of the God who we can trust. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's disappointing how little the 95 theses has in some sense but it's also always very satisfying it how is. how uh helpful it is for helping to to uh gain a good perspective on on the reformation from like a historical pers- uh view yeah of like this is this is the beginning you know and, and we don't need to read the beginning as if the end had already happened mm. you know there, there's a lot that goes on in the rest of luther's career that we shouldn't be reading back into this document because it's just not there. Right. And this, if nothing else, this is just a great example of like self-examination that I think the church would do well to continue. I'm not saying that every single piece of self-reflection and self-examination needs to lead to like massive reformation or something, um, but to look at your practices, to look at, um, uh, you know, for, for this always jumps to the front of my mind right now, but like some of the stuff going on in the SBC, like I think there's a lot a lot of good that could come from like some real self-examination within the SBC denomination. Um, you know, what, are we placing too much priority on this or that? Are we are we ignoring these things for the sake of these things? And I don't know. I, I, like you said, like you said, I think it's it's just a cool piece of history that we can peer back into the mind of Luther before the the formal Reformation began and and get an idea of his heart like his, his true care for the church like he's not again he's not doing this to start a revolution he's not trying to be radical even he's just trying to really just have a debate to have a conversation with others about these really real important and significant things and yeah it's just I, this is this is something i love peering back into history a glimpse at a moment in time um, and like you said, consider that in its context, not necessarily against the Luther that we sort of know today, um, but consider it in 1517 Catholic Germany. So I don't know. Any other thoughts you have? Do you just want to wrap her up here? So uh, yeah, I think we're done. Cool. Well, we just want to give you guys huge shout out. Big thank you for listening all month long. 
uh, as we talked about heresy. We talked a lot about heresy, in particular heretics. Um, and so we, we obviously we're wrapping up this month today uh, with an episode that is not about heresy necessarily. Um, but we just want to say thank you for listening to this episode and any episode of our little podcast. If you want to connect with us, hit us up on Twitter at Doxology Podcast, or you can email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We always welcome feedback, uh, good and bad. Uh, give us you know, your harshest criticisms. Uh, send us your questions, your episode ideas. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, 